So this morning, uh, I'm going to shift gears. I'm going to move into this message today. As we get ready for the last week in uh, our message series called Above and Beyond. And I, I want to just tell you, thank you. I want to tell you that uh, I, I don't know if this will be the best sermon out of them. I, I never know how it's going to come out. But I do want to tell you right at the onset, I believe this might be the most important. I want to give you a vision today of an above and beyond that God has in store for each and every one of us. And I want to invite you to begin with me by opening your Bibles to the book of Revelation, all the way at the back of the book. Go with me to the book of Revelation, beginning in chapter 4. I want you to see a picture that we have here of a day that is yet to come. Revelation chapter 4 gives us some Incredible pictures of what happens in the presence of God. Beginning in verse 8, it says of these four living creatures that surround the throne of God. Beginning in verse 8 of Revelation 4, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sit on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord of God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created. And then you move into chapter 5, and we get more of the picture. It says to us that the 24 elders, they come around the throne and they cast down their crowns before the Lord. And it says in verse Nine, they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and nation and you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then we get more of the picture around the four living creatures and outside of the 24 elders. The Bible goes on to say that there are thousands upon thousands of angels that surround the throne of God. And we read their song in a loud voice. Verse 12 says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then beyond the the song of the the multitude of angels, look at verse 13 with me in Revelation 5. It says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and forever. On this last Sunday of our Above and Beyond series, I want to challenge your faith today. I also want to challenge your imagination. I want you to see the greatest above and beyond promise that we have. And can I tell you today that the greatest above and beyond promise that every Christian has is the hope of heaven. Boy, that was a weak amen on a Sunday morning. I said the greatest above and beyond that is yours is heaven. 
Now, I got to tell you today, there's, there's real motivation behind me preaching this message and starting with the text that I started with. Because as incredible as that picture is that we've read, as awesome as that moment of worship would be around the throne of God, the picture we see here in Revelation and others like the one we see in Isaiah 6, as awesome as that moment is, I got to be honest and say today that my fear is it's the only image that we have of being in God's presence. And because that incredible moment of worship is the only image that many Christians have, it's an incomplete image. I want you for just a moment to, to think about what heaven will really be like this morning. Imagine you're a part of the space program. Now, you can go on the website of NASA right now, and you can see they have plans to go back to the moon, 2024. And this time, it's to go to the moon to stay. That's the vision. And the reason they want to stay there is because they want to learn how to function there. They want to how to operate there. They want to learn how to, to build and take apart and make things work because the real picture is not just to get to the moon in 2024, but it's moon to Mars. So just imagine for a moment, you're a part of the space program, and you've spent years now preparing for the mission to Mars. And now you're about to be a part of the team of astronauts that take a five-year journey to live and to study the planet of Mars. It's launch day. You're there. You're in the spacecraft. You're buckled in. You're harnessed up. You're ready to go. And all of a sudden, one of your fellow astronauts looks at you and they say, so what do you know about Mars? Now imagine if in that moment you looked at them and you said, not much really. You know, it's funny, we never really talked about it. I mean, I guess we'll just figure it out when we get there. Now you can imagine how ridiculous that would sound, but come on, there's a lot of Christians that are living their life and that's the way they look at heaven. What do you know about it? Well, not much really. I mean, I know I want to go. And we know how to make sure we're going. I mean, we make sure our tickets punch. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. We know that. And we know it's certainly better than the alternative. We know we want to go to heaven, but why? What do you know about heaven? And can you imagine living your entire Christian life and saying, well, I don't know much, but I guess we'll just figure it out when we get there. The reality is a lot of Christians do live their whole lives that way. And for that reason, I want to talk to you today about the above and beyond that God has for us. And I want you to go with me to Philippians chapter 1, because the Apostle Paul had a perspective that I, I fear most of us might not have. I want you to see how clearly he envisioned the presence of the Lord. Philippians chapter 1 Beginning in verse 20, it says this, and you got to understand now, Paul is a prisoner when he writes this. Not only is he a prisoner, but he doesn't know what the future holds for him. Tomorrow may mean freedom. It may mean torture. It may mean death. And so he's contemplating that future reality when he writes these words in Philippians 1 verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life 
or by death. What Paul is saying is, if I live, I want to live to honor Jesus. But if they kill me tomorrow, I want to die well. I don't want to dishonor Jesus. I don't want to turn my back on him if they torture me. He doesn't know what tomorrow holds. And so he says, I want to make sure that I have sufficient courage to deal with whatever I'm going to deal with. Look at the next verse. Here's the resolve that the apostle comes to. He says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He goes a little farther. He says, if I'm to go on living in the body, well, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. Think about this. Paul is wrestling with the fact that he could go on and have a fruitful ministry or he could be crucified and wake up tomorrow or be killed and wake up tomorrow in the presence of Jesus. And he says, I don't really know which one I want more. To be quite honest, it's kind of a toss up as I sit here and I think about it. Look at the next verse. Verse 23, he says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Could we just say those last three words of that verse together? Better by far. That was the heart of the apostle Paul when he thought about the realities of heaven. It's better by far. Now here's what I believe. All of you already knew that was the right answer. I mean, come on, we're in church. If somebody asks you what's better, living another day on this life or being with Jesus in eternity. We all know the right answer, right? We can give the church answer. It's better by far to be with Jesus. But how many of us really believe it? I mean, how many of us really live every day of our life believing that God wants to bless us, God wants to fulfill us and satisfy us, but as good as it gets, we'll still never be better than the prize that's laid up for us in Christ. What did Paul see? That's what I want to know. What did Paul know that we don't know that he could live life with that kind of an attitude? And what is it that's caused us to develop such a dim view of eternity, such a, a low view of heaven that we would actually spend our lives thinking about the things that we'll potentially miss out on in this world instead of living our lives longing for the things we have to gain in the next one? So church, I want to stretch your imagination today to look above and beyond. I want you to consider heaven. Let me tell you, Hollywood isn't helping with the picture that we have in our minds of heaven. If you think about what we see in movies or even what we've seen throughout uh, the art that's been painted in the most beautiful cathedrals throughout our history, if you look to those images, I, I got to personally tell you, I'm not too excited about just floating on a clown. On, on a cloud with a bunch of, you know, chubby, fat baby angels, you know, strumming their harps of gold. I, I have no desire to, to walk into a, a colorless, textureless, white out experience where I just kind of float along. And, and, you know, preachers haven't helped that much either sometimes. Because you know what preachers say? Sometimes we say, hey, if you don't feel like worshiping God this morning in church, brother, I don't know what you plan on doing in heaven because we're going to worship forever and forever and forever. And you go, okay. I just wanted to sit down, man. I worked a double shift this weekend. Like, I, I just wanted, you know, a, a rest. And we paint this image that as beautiful as worship's going to be, and I mean, come on, as incredible as it's going to be to worship around the throne of heaven, we get this idea that all we're ever going to do is be in an eternal church service where the clock in the back of the room is broken 
and you never get dismissed for lunch. How many want to go there? And then, you know, I thought John Eldridge so eloquently described that feeling in his book, The Journey of Desire. Here's what he said. Nearly every Christian I have spoken with has the same idea that eternity is an unending church service. We've settled on the image of a never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. And our heart sinks. Forever and ever. That's it? That's the good news? And then we sigh and we feel guilty that we're not more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. And I tell you today that the Bible gives us a whole lot more to live for and a whole lot more to long for than any of those pictures. The Bible gives us a beautiful picture. It's painted on the canvas of the word. It's painted on the canvas of creation and in the cosmos. And for just a few moments today, I want to challenge you to stretch your faith and your imagination to go above and beyond the things of this world that you can actually conceive with your heart, something that is better by far, better by far. But first, let me just tell you why I think we have such a low view and not a glorious view of heaven. And the first reason is Satan himself. You know, Jesus describes the devil with these words in John 8. He said, the devil is a murderer. Jesus speaking from the beginning, and he does not hold to the truth. Jesus goes on to say, when the devil speaks, he lies because it's his native tongue. He's the father of lies. He's always been a liar. And I want to tell you today, I don't think it's coincidental that Christians who love Jesus with all their heart have such a low view of heaven. Jesus said this. Jesus said, store up your treasure in heaven. And I think one of the lies of the enemy is to get you to believe that heaven is just not worth the investment. That you might as well go ahead and invest in this life and in the things that you can have and hold today because heaven is not a worthy investment. Some of Satan's favorite lies are about heaven. And and I'll show you in Revelation chapter 3, or rather 13. Revelation 13 describes the satanic beast. And the Bible says in verse 6 about the beast, it says, it opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. You can see right here clearly that the tactics of the enemy is threefold. He wants to lie about God's person. He wants to lie about God's people. And he wants to lie about God's place. He wants you to think less of the place that God has in store for you. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus said in John 14, in my father's house are many mansions or in my father's house are many rooms, literally dwelling places. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Have you ever thought about the fact that the place that God is preparing for you is the home that Satan was kicked out of? I mean, don't you think it gets under his skin a little bit to think of the reality that God is preparing a place for you and he's been evicted. He will never step foot in the presence of God again. See, he doesn't want to convince you that heaven isn't real. He doesn't have to convince you that heaven doesn't exist. All he wants to do is convince you that heaven is not worth living for. 
that heaven is not worth longing for, and that heaven is not worth sacrificing and storing up treasures for. It's the lie of the enemy. He wants you to think. I mean, Colossians says this. Colossians 1, or 3, 1 says, since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above and not on the earthly things. You know, the devil would love for you and I to believe that the most boring, unearthly, non-adventurous, eternal, unpleasurable existence that you could ever have is the very place that Jesus said, I want you to set your heart and your mind on. That's the heart of the enemy, to get you to think less of the purpose and the plan that God has for your life. When he opens his mouth, he lies. He lies about the person of God. He lies about the people of God. He lies about the place of God. And the reality is many people have bought into the lie. Many Christians have bought into the lie. That's one of the reasons that we have such a low view of heaven. I'll tell you one of the other reasons that we don't think so gloriously of, of the home that awaits us. And that's not just Satan, but scholars. Scholars. Now, this is not a, a statement against uh, education or uh, against knowledge. By all means, gain knowledge. But the reality is some of the brightest minds in human history have cast the lowest light on our future eternity. That's why Paul wrote uh, an incredible detailed defense of the physical bodily resurrection of every believer. And it's not a coincidence that when he wrote that defense, he wrote it to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going to read it all today, but I would encourage you to read that whole chapter because Paul gives an incredible defense of the physical resurrection of every believer in Jesus. You say, well, why does that matter? Why did he give that defense? Because one of the beliefs of Greek philosophy that had really infiltrated the church in Corinth and throughout that region was the, the, the belief of dualism. Dualism is, is just this idea that, that everything is spiritual, is, is good and right and holy, and everything that is physical is evil and impure and unholy. And one of the greatest proponents of this Greek philosophy was Plato. In fact, Plato would even say, the body imprisons the soul. So the idea is that we're, our, our, our souls are, are, are trapped in these physical bodies, in this earthly realm, but one day we're going to be freed. One day we're, we're going we're to be able to escape all that, and then we'll actually be pure and holy and right. And a lot of churches, they started believing this idea of dualism, which turned to a doctrine of Gnosticism. And, and the reality is that, that they started looking at heaven as only spiritual terms, purely spiritual and the earth and the human body, purely physical. So heaven is good. Earth is bad. Your spirit's good. Your body's bad. So the problem is when you try to imagine heaven, you can't. You can't imagine heaven because if you think about it in physical terms, you just made it less spiritual. You made it less heavenly. And so when you try to imagine yourself being in heaven and you give yourself a body in that thought, all of a sudden you've somehow defiled the spiritual reality of heaven. And so it becomes all, all of a sudden impossible for you to get a picture in your mind of what heaven might be like. And if we're honest today, there are some Christians that are totally okay with that. 
They're okay with the idea that I, I can't have any conceptualization of heaven. And, and some will even back it up with scripture. And they'll say, here's why. They'll, they'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 every time. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. This is what it says. It's on the screen. However, as it was written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And so that's the rationalization. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can conceive the things that God has in store for us. So how are we ever going to even be able to even think about what heaven might be like? It might as well just be this, this ambient spiritual space that we just float into because you can't have any conception of what it's actually going to be like. And some people are fine right there. But oh, how I wish they would keep reading. Just read the next verse. Look at verse 10. It says, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So when the apostle Paul said, it is better by far to be in heaven, I want to promise you today, he was not thinking about any of those images that we've received from culture He's not, he's not thinking about any of those things. He didn't have this idea, oh, I, I mean, I, I would love to, to, to be here, to be free again, and, and to be a part of the church, but boy, I'd much rather just float around on a cloud for all of eternity in a textureless, odorless, room temperature, colorless void where they sing forever. I can promise you his vision was much greater than that. And that's why he spends all of 1 Corinthians 15 explaining and driving home the reality of a physical, bodily resurrection. Let me show you one other part of Paul's writings in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's talking to one of the other churches. And, and he says this He says, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. I like the older translation on this verse. It says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who have died. He says, why? So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Paul was saying, listen, there's something more. Uh, yes, death is sorrowful. Yes, we grieve. But if you understood, then you wouldn't grieve the way that people that don't know Jesus grieve. Because he goes on in that chapter to explain that everyone who has died loving and living for Jesus Christ one day will be resurrected. They're going to get glorified bodies. And the Bible says, Paul said, those of us that are still alive and remain on the earth. And how many of you want to still be in that group? Those of us that don't even taste death, we're going to be raptured up with them to meet them in the clouds. There's going to be an incredible reunion. He says, we're going to be with the Lord forever. Encourage each other with these words. End of statement. Are you encouraged by those words? Paul was saying, listen, you're going to have a physical, bodily resurrection. And can I tell you today, it's not a resuscitation of the life that was put in the grave. You know, Lazarus, one of Jesus' dear friends, he died. I mean, if you know the story, four days later, Jesus showed up at his tomb, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. He called him back to life, but it wasn't resurrected life. How many of you know Lazarus died again? He had two funerals. 
And when he called Lazarus back to life, the first thing that he said was to the people that were gathered at his tomb, roll the stone away. Why? Because Lazarus is coming back in his same body. He doesn't have the power to, to move that stone by himself. I need, you to, I need you to roll the stone away. And then when Lazarus came out of the tomb, Jesus said to the crowd, take the grave clothes off of him. Unwrap him. Let him loose. The guy's struggling there. He looks like a mummy. Help him out. But what happened when Jesus rose from the grave? When Jesus conquered death, he didn't just die. He conquered death. And he was the first fruits of the resurrection. When he came out of the tomb, nobody had to roll the stone for him. In fact, the Bible says clearly the angel moved the stone so the women could see that he wasn't there. Jesus didn't need any help. And when they looked in the tomb, what did they see? The grave clothes that he'd been wrapped in, they were still laying in the same place. The Bible describes Jesus' crucifixion with such brutality. It says that his flesh hung like ribbons off of his back. It said he was beaten beyond recognition. But you know, when the disciples saw him on Easter Sunday morning, he, his flesh wasn't hanging like ribbons. He was healed. He was whole. He was healthy. And it wasn't just Casper the friendly ghost floating through the garden that day. The Bible says the women cling to his feet. They held on to him. The Bible says the disciples, they touched him. They put their fingers in the place where the nails had been driven. They, they put their hand in his side. The Bible says he warmed himself with them by a fire and he ate fish with them. Jesus is the first fruits of your resurrection. So we're going to live in a physical body where we can embrace, where we can touch, where we can taste, where we can experience a new life. I want to say to you today, any belief you have about heaven that doesn't include a physical existence is one mark in the wind column for Satan. Because the plan of God, if you want to, get a, you want to know a better picture, not a full picture, but a better picture of what heaven's going to be like, Go back to the beginning of your Bible, because the Bible says that in the beginning, God created a place specifically and uniquely designed, a beautiful, perfect place without sin, where man could, could thrive and live. And the Bible says that God walked with Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? God created a place where we could abide with him. And when he made Adam, he didn't make him a spirit, hang out with him for a few days, and then decide to give him a body. No, the Bible says he formed him out of the dust of the earth and then he breathed in him the breath of life. And so God's plan from the beginning and God's plan till the end will be that you have a physical body in a physical existence with Jesus. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? Look back and look at Eden. The Bible says this in Revelation chapter 21 verse 5. He who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. You need to know that's the plan of God. He's making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He wanted John to know. Don't just hear what I'm saying. Write it down. He wanted you to know. I am making everything new. New. And so can I tell you, not only is it going to be a physical body, but it's going to be a physical place. When we spend eternity with God, see, here's the reality that you and I are living in right now. We are, there's a tension between two realities. One is the reality that you were created for, the Garden of Eden. 
That was God's plan. How many of you know that before there was original sin, there was original blessing? I mean, come on, if we're going to go back to the beginning, let's go all the way back. Let's don't just start with the, the forbidden fruit and sin and, and the curse. Let's go all the way back to God's original plan. And I've never been to Eden, but something in me wants to go there. Because yes, we can all say we're a part of Adam's fallen race and we all have Adam's sinful blood within us. Well, we've also been created for Eden. Just like Adam, I've got footprints in Eden. But the, the other reality is the place that God's calling me to. I've never been to heaven either, but there's something in me that, that just, I'm already there. There's something in me that wants to go. And, and Paul spells it out in the book of Ephesians. He says very clearly in Ephesians 2, 6, God has raised us up with Christ Jesus and set us in the heavenly realms. So the reality is I got footprints in Eden, but I got a seat in heaven. I've got a seat in God's presence today, and I'm not where I, I used to be. I'm not where I was designed for, and I'm not where God's intending me to go, but I live every day in this reality that God has created me for something that is above and beyond. And there's a desire in you for that too. Maybe you've pushed it down. Maybe you thought it was unbiblical. Maybe you thought it was ungodly some of the things that you long for about heaven. And maybe you thought that those things are not heavenly, and so you began, like John Eldridge said in his book, you began to just turn and desire more of the earth. But I want to challenge you to, to stir and to look into those heavenly desires because your desires reveal the blueprints of your master designer. There are things that, that you want, that you feel like, man, I'm going to lose those things if I lose this life. And you're looking at, at heaven as if it's some kind of uh, an alternate. But I'm going to tell you, the earth that we have right now, this is the shadow. That's the substance. The best day on your life is a shadow of the eternity that God has planned for us. It's kind of like taste buds. We've all got them. But mine are different than yours, right? I mean, I like spicy food. Uh, we had Ivan and Emily over for dinner the other night and and. We talked about what we were going to make before they came, and then, and then like an hour before they got to our house, I said, what if they don't like spicy food? I'm looking at stuff, man. I got black pepper chicken, and she's got like these sweet potatoes with cayenne, and I'm like, man, if they don't eat spicy food, we have wrecked this whole evening. You've got, you've got things you like and some things you don't like, but you know what's true about all of us? None of us like gravel. Nobody eats gravel. Why? because of God's design. None of us were intended to desire or to have an appetite for gravel. And what I want to say to you is, if you're trying to stir up a desire and a longing for some disembodied, non-physical, eternal worship service, and you're trying to guilt yourself into longing for that, stop. Just stop. And, and by the way, don't call that heaven because that's not what we get out of the word of God. There are other desires that you have that you long for that are probably way more heavenly. You see them when you look in the face of your children. You see them when you watch the sunrise and sunset. You see them when you feel a warm summer day and cool water rush on your face. Those are the things that say, man, this feels good. I'm going to tell you, that feels more like heaven to me. Reality is when we look at heaven in scripture, sometimes it can be confusing. And one of the reasons it's confusing 
is because we get one word in the English language, heaven. And that word is used to describe a bunch of different stuff. For example, the Bible says that the bird flies through the heavens. Well, we know that that's our atmosphere. The Bible also says that the stars are in the heavens or in the heavenlies. Well, we, we understand that the stars, are, are, they're in the solar system, they're in the galaxy, they're in outer space. The Bible also says that heaven is the place where God's throne is. And so we read all these descriptions and we say, well, what is heaven? Where is heaven? Is it physically up? I mean, actually, where is it at? What's it like? The reality is when most people talk about going to heaven, they're talking about the intermediate heaven. Now, we're going to go a layer deeper here, so stay with me this morning. Some of you, maybe you've never even considered that thought, the intermediate heaven. What are you talking about? That, that doesn't even sound, that sounds temporary. That's why we're calling it the intermediate heaven. It is temporary. The intermediate heaven is the place right now where Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father God. The Bible says that, that when Stephen was being stoned to death, he lifted up his eyes and he looked and he saw the Son of God standing up and applauding him from heaven. He saw the intermediate heaven. He saw the place where Jesus is right now. Luke 15 tells the story of God's heart to go after the lost. And it says that every time a lost person gets saved, there's rejoicing and celebration in heaven. That's the intermediate heaven. That's what's happening there right now. When you tell your, your children that, that, that great-grandmom or great-granddad, they, they went to be with Jesus, what you're saying is they went to the intermediate heaven. They're right now in the presence of Jesus. They're with him. They're enjoying that place. When Jesus hung on the cross, he looked at the thief next to him, and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He was talking about the intermediate heaven. The same word that's used to describe paradise is the same word that is used in the Greek text to describe the Garden of Eden. Saying this beautiful place, you're going to go there, you're going to be with me today in that moment. And I'm going to tell you, that is a place that is above and beyond your imagination. Like we sang earlier, your presence is heaven. To me, I want to promise you the greatest thing about going to the intermediate heaven is that you will see Jesus face to face. And it's not a place that we get to eventually when some, you know, some event happens on the end time calendar. The reality is the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. So the moment that, that you take your last breath in this lifetime, your next breath in, you will exhale oxygen, you will inhale the glory of God. That's the intermediate heaven, and it's beautiful beyond description, but I want you to know today it's also temporary. And I'm going to show you a verse in Revelation 21 that gives us an even better picture of the hope and the plan that God has for you and I. Revelation 21, the first four verses. Then I saw, this is John, God speaking to him on the Isle of Patmos. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21 one through four. Let's put this on the screen. For the first heaven, he says, had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Verse two, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, 
God's dwelling place is among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he'll be their God. This is the picture that the Bible gives us of the new heavens and the new earth. And oftentimes we we confuse the two. We think about the intermediate heaven when we quote this next verse, but the reality is God's talking about an even better reality. In the next verse, it says, verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Can I tell you, if you want to get an idea of heaven, go back to Genesis God's plan, you know, he could have he invited man to live with him in heaven. Have you ever thought about that? When God made man in his own image, he could have just let him live there. Streets of gold, crystal sea. I mean, just come and stay with me. That was never God's plan. God's plan was always an incarnational plan that he would come and dwell with us. And so he created a place just for us, a place that was perfectly hospitable to the human race. And then God came and he walked with man until sin separated us from God. We saw a glimpse and a foretaste of God's plan for us. And this verse tells us there's a day coming when he's gonna make a new heaven and a new earth. And it's not gonna be somewhere up there in the cosmos The Bible says God's incarnational plan will be fulfilled, that he said, I see the city of God, the new Jerusalem, not not the city in the Middle East. That's just a shadow. That's just a type. Just like the temple was a type of the presence of God, just like the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament was a shadow of what's the reality in heaven, that's just a shadow. The new Jerusalem, the city of God, is going to come down out of heaven, and it says it's going to be on the earth. Heaven and earth become a united reality, and God will make his dwelling among us. He'll be our God, and we'll be his people. We're going to live in a glorified earth. Here's God's plan, a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Savior, with resurrected loved ones. That's God's plan for you, and it is above And it is beyond all that we could ask or imagine. But I'm challenging you today to go ahead and use your imagination because it's tangible. It's something we can experience. And it's something that we can look towards like the Apostle Paul and say, God, I I believe you can heal me. I believe you can save me. I believe you're not finished with me. And if you leave me here for another day, I'll be fruitful in the ministry. But it's far better. It is better by far to be in your presence. But then the question that often comes up is, well, what what are we going to do then? I mean, for all of eternity, what are we going to do? Well, full disclosure, I don't know completely what we're going to do in that place. I look forward to finding out. But let me just stretch your imagination to consider just a few things. How about exploration? You know, when, when God created Adam and he put him in the garden, what he told him was to subdue the earth have dominion. And and so Adam had permission to explore this whole incredible earth that we now know. How many of you understand that when we get into the new earth, God's going to give us an invitation to exploration? I mean, my wife and I, we drove or we flew over the Swiss Alps as we were flying into Italy last month. I'm going to tell you, man, I was like a little kid at a candy store. My nose was pressed up against the glass. I was like, I want to climb those mountains. 
And those are so incredibly beautiful. I don't know if it's going to happen in this lifetime, but you know what? I've got all the time in the world to scale those mountains because we have an invitation to explore. Think about invention for a minute. You know, invention is not the necessity of the sinful nature. It's not like because we had sin, all of a sudden we had to get creative. I mean, think about the potential of fallen man. In the book of Genesis, the Bible says that because the people spoke one language, they started building the Tower of Babel. They, they had every intention of building a tower up to heaven. And that was a fallen sinful race with one language. How much more incredible is our ability to invent, to advance technology when we all have one spirit and one mind in Christ Jesus, when we all speak a heavenly language? Think about how fast our technology will be surpassed. Our space shuttles will be archaic. And so we don't just get an invitation to explore the new earth. We're going to explore the new heavens. We might discover billions of new galaxies. Scientists tell us they're out there. We don't know what else is out there, but we have an invitation to explore and to invent. Or maybe you ever thought about this. How about this question, you know, of people feeling like, what am I going to do? Am I going to get bored in heaven? Can I just tell you that in heaven, there's going to be incredible validation? I I mean, you're going to have such a sense of fulfillment. If you've ever put in a hard day's work and just felt great about it at the end, I mean, forget about all the bad days. I mean, when you've really worked hard, maybe it was at the office, maybe it was on your lawn, you know, and you got all the lines in the, in the lawn. It just looks perfect. You know, the mulch beds. It's just like, man, that just feels good. Did you know work was not a part of the curse in Genesis? Long before Adam and Eve sinned, God's command was them, to them was to tend the garden, to work the soil. Now, what makes work feel like a curse is that it's tedious, that, that we feel like uh, it, it's tiresome and it's frustrating and it's not satisfying, but you're going to have a job in heaven that is so fulfilling, that is so validating. You're going you're to feel so encouraged in the work that you do. And, and then maybe you ask the question, well, what work will I do? What's my job going to be? And let me tell you, those are the questions you ought to be asking about heaven. What's it going to be like to serve in the kingdom of God for all of eternity? And the reason those questions are such good questions is because they start to shed a light on this reality. The way you live your life in this lifetime has implications on your eternity. I'm going to show you that from the scripture. Jesus, he gives us a picture of what it's going to be like to stand in judgment before the throne of God. And he says in Matthew chapter 25, He says, this is what it's going to be like for those that were good and faithful servants in this lifetime. Matthew 25, verse 23, the master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. Aren't those the words we're living for? We want to hear the master say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But look at what else he says. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Jesus is going to look at at your life, and you might feel like it's not much. You might say, it's just a few things. I mean, I I never had a lot of money. I I never really had a lot of responsibility. I I never was the manager or the CEO or the boss, or I I was just a stay-at-home parent. I don't know what you, but Jesus doesn't look at, at all the opportunities you didn't have. Jesus looks at how you stewarded your life, and he said, you were faithful with a few things. 
Now come and be the ruler over many things. See, when we get a glimpse of the a foretaste of what God has for us in eternity future, we start to realize that right now I'm writing my resume for the kingdom of heaven. The way I treat my spouse, the way I treat others, the way I raise my kids, the way I I love the unlovely, I'm writing my resume for the way that I'm gonna serve the king. Look at these words in Revelation chapter 22, verse three. Speaking of that reality, it says, no longer will there be any curse. Somebody ought to say amen. The throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. We're gonna serve him. Think about the relationships that we're gonna have in heaven. How fulfilling and satisfying those could be. I mean, we try, we try to paint a picture in, in, this, in, in this lifetime of, of, a, of a perfect relationship, and we've got a good metaphor that gives us a hint to heaven. It's, it's called a wedding, and the bride dresses up in white, which symbolizes purity and holiness, and, and she makes her way down the aisle towards her husband, and, and, and we can't think of a better picture of a perfect relationship than a happily ever after marriage. As you grow up, it's what you dream about, it's what you long for. You want to just be that couple that just has a happily ever after for all of life. And the Bible says, here's what relationships are going to be like in heaven. You're the bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. In other words, the relationship is going to be more perfect and more beautiful than, than the best relationship you can imagine in this lifetime. When John the Revelator was seeing heaven for the first time, there in Revelation 21, he saw the new heavens and the new earth. And we read it earlier, but I always thought it was interesting that the first thing he noticed was that there was no sea. John says, the new heaven and the new earth, I saw them. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And that, I struggle with that. Why is there no sea? Because other scriptures tell us there is a crystal sea, and there is a river that flows from the throne of God. So we know there's bodies of water there, and we know that we read it earlier in Revelation that everything on the sea and under the sea is going to worship and join in the concert of, of worship around the throne of God. So why did he say that? And then I thought about this. John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He he was excommunicated from his loved ones, from the church, from the people of God. He couldn't be near anyone, and God visits him and gives him this incredible revelation of life in the new heavens and the new earth, and the first reality that overwhelms his senses is, there's nothing that's separating me from the people of God. The barrier's gone. There's no sea. We're going to be able to be with one another, and not just with one another, but all the people that we've studied and learned from, the great cloud of witnesses are going to be there with us. I don't know about you, but there's some folks I'm going to get in line to talk to. Think about food in heaven. Come on, let's just go a little deeper. It's almost lunchtime. I know I can get an amen thinking about food. You know, there's some people that, again, this goes back to that that dualism mentality. There's some people that say, well, you know, we're not going to need food in heaven to nourish us, so there's probably not going to be food in heaven. If I don't need to eat, I'm not going to eat. How many of you only eat when you need to eat? 
Not me. I don't have to be hungry. I mean, come on. You, you bring a dessert to me, it doesn't matter if I've had a two-course, three-course, four-course meal. You put that dessert in front of me, I'm going to find some room. How about you? The Bible says that we have awaiting for us the marriage supper of the Lamb. I mean, there's going to be an incredible banqueting table. Now, are we going to need food? I don't know if we're going to need it, but we're going to enjoy it. Why? Because we're going to have all of our senses plus And so next time you eat something and you go, "Mm, man, that is heavenly. It probably is. It probably is. Because heaven is going to be that good. It's going to taste amazing. You know, the same thing about sleep. Some people say like, well, you know, we're not going to need sleep in our glorified bodies. Well, how many of you just appreciate a good nap? I mean, come on. Ain't nothing like just just getting a great night's sleep or a, a good afternoon nap in the hammock. I believe we're going to be able to rest. God has created it in the cycle. Or what about this? Let me just go a little farther. What about competition? Maybe you've never thought about competition in heaven, especially because in our, in our sin-cursed world, you know, we've, we've made it a, a bad thing oftentimes and with impure motives, but I, I love a good contest. I think God does too. I was reading uh, about... Eric Liddell, many of you might know who he was. He, he got the nickname the Flying Scott. He was a runner in the Olympics in 1924. And his story is told in the classic film Chariots of Fire. Anybody ever seen that, that old movie? Eric Liddell, his parents were missionaries to China. And he had every intention of following in their footsteps and being a missionary to China. But of course, he was an Olympic level athlete. And his sister was concerned that his passion for running was going to steal away from his fervor to serve God. But here's what Eric Liddell told his sister. He said, I believe that God made me for a purpose for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. Just think about that. To win is to honor him. What if the greatest baseball player to ever play the game was born in this life without legs? Don't you want to see him play? I know I do. I mean, to think of the potential for what we'll see and what we'll experience. Think about literature. Maybe the greatest author, maybe the greatest playwright in the new earth was never taught how to read in this lifetime, but they have all of that God-given potential and they put faith in Jesus and one day will enjoy the expression fully of their gifting. I want to tell you today, and I'm, I'm not just trying to give you ideas, I'm trying to stretch your faith to have a grand view of heaven, to believe that the place and the thing that God has in store for us is so incredible that regardless of what you hope for tomorrow, you would resolve that it is far better to be with God. That's what Moses believed. Moses had all the things of this world at his disposal. He could have lived his life in the lap, in the lap of luxury. But the Bible says this. The Bible says in Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. He said that the things of this earth, 
They have no hold on me. They don't mean to me what they used to. Why? Because I got a glimpse of my reward. I'm going to store up my treasure in heaven. I'm not going to be limited or held back by the the things that I feel like I might lose or miss out on when I have heaven to gain. Paul said it simply, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Peter, he was one of Jesus' dearest friends when he lived his life on this earth. Let me tell you what Peter said about that reality. He said, since everything will be destroyed in this way, This is 2 Peter 3.11. Then what kind of people ought you to be? And that's why this matters today. Because when we get a glimpse of heaven, we realize the implications it has in this life. So Peter says, what kind of person should you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. And the elements will melt in the heat. That's the reality for the current heavens and current earth. But, he says in verse 13, in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, he says, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless and blameless and at peace with him. Make every effort. Why? Because you're looking forward. You're looking above and beyond to something far greater. See, the early church, they they lived their life on the launch pad. They lived their life understanding that the moment I gave my heart to Jesus, he initiated the launch sequence. He started counting down to the plan and purpose, to the place that he has for me. And they lived every day knowing that what I do today goes on the resume for my eternity. And I did the math. And I can tell you, if I live to be 70 years old, then that means Jesus is counting down to my launch day from 946,080,000 seconds. I hope I have that many. The Bible says no one's guaranteed tomorrow. Tomorrow's less than 86,400 seconds away. And the reality is, one day, this life will end. That's just the way God planned it. The question is, are you living and are you longing for liftoff? Does your desire to go above and beyond all that this world can offer give you focus and clarity for today? I want to end by reading one more passage of scripture from the Apostle Paul. And then we're going to pray today. And I want to challenge you, if you you aren't in a right relationship with Jesus, if you If you're not ready for launch day, if you're not ready to see God face to face, I want to challenge you to to make yourself ready. Today, the Apostle Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, 
I want you to see the focus of his life. Let it challenge and convict you today. He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That means a physical, bodily resurrection. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Are you pressing on today towards that prize? I want to invite you to bow your head with me. Close your eyes. Father, in this moment right now, we just, we we shut out everything else, every other distraction, every other thought for the day. And God, in this moment, we just Invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us. Now I want to invite you, church, to respond, to speak back to him. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you can. If you don't have a certainty about your eternal security in Christ, you can. Today, just confess to Jesus. Say, I'm a sinner, Jesus. I I can't get to heaven on my own. And, And God, I put my full confidence in you to save me, to forgive me of my sins, to write my name down in the Lamb's book of life so that I can know that I know that I know that for me to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. God, today I pray that you give that assurance and that confidence to everyone that's listening to this message today. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.